This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. If you're scared to take chances, you'll never have answers. You know what that is, Kyle? I'm guessing it's a movie quote. It's the iconic rapper Nas in his famous song about rehab research where Dude. you got to take chances. <laughs> I, it might not have been rehab research. I thought it was, but. Okay. I'm really disappointed that I don't know that now because I, can I tell you that when I got the Rona recently, one of the things that I did was I watched this Netflix series called hip hop evolution. And it yeah. goes through like the, yeah. Yeah. the evolution of hip hop. And then of course I listened to that podcast that you turned me on to the, mm-hmm. uh, 60 songs to explain the 90s which is absolutely fantastic if y'all haven't listened to that it is the guy is hysterical yeah yeah. he is so funny i I bust up laughing at him every time but i'm really now i'm really disappointed that i didn't know that that lyric well you need to step up your game man you gotta step up your game Uh, clearly so what we're getting at is basically we got some bfr studies that are kind of meh and some of these that we're going to talk about today, maybe they didn't even take the chances to get the answers. Some did, and maybe the answers weren't what we wanted. And so we're going to break down four papers. <laughs> four papers. I'm going to be serious here. I know, but it's funny. That we get questions on, like, hey, what about this one? And, and it's good because we're all rainbows and butterflies when it comes to BFR. You yeah. know, it's going to cure cancer. Or at least we get accused of that, even though, um, you know, I, I, I think we try and say it has its specific place. So we're going to go through four studies, one about prehab with BFR, one when you're in the subacute phase with BFR, and then another in the late phase with BFR, and the one proximal. And the good thing about this is, um, I think three, two or three of these are, three of these of the four are, are people we know and our friends. And so this isn't like we're going to beat them down because rehab, you know, you know how you make a statistician cry. You tell them that you want to do a rehab study because they like to control variables and rehab studies suck ass. There are, there are too many variables. They're a bitch, you know, and you read these studies and it's like, they did 30% of a one rep max at 80% limb occlusion pressure with a straight leg raise. You're like, okay, first off, how do they get that, that 80% one rep max straight leg raise? Um, and everyone the entire time tolerated 80% limb occlusion pressure. Um, if you've done BFR in the clinic, you can see that like our metric study, you know, which where they have to control every variable. And I've been on multiple studies, not just BFR with them. Johns Hopkins is the, is the site that, that monitors it all before the study even starts. The statisticians always ask us these things like, okay, well, what if the patient doesn't show up for a visit? Uh, well, we'll just do another one. Well, what if they don't do two visits? Um, well, we'll do two. What if they don't do three visits and they break down every, what if they deflate once during it? Um, well, we'll let them reinflate. What if they deflate it twice? And so there's all these different variables when you're trying to really do these studies, you got to take into account. So what we're going to do is look at the methodology. You know, again, it's, it's hard to pull these off. So kudos for even at least getting the study done. We're not here to, to be little, little jerks. Um, but I, but I think it's a, a good to go deeper dive into these things. So. That's what we're going to do today. Without further ado, it's not just Kyle on here. It's the, I got to get your acronym right, HMFIC, Zach Dunkel. 
Yep. Let's, Ted Mo, let's not, Mofo let's in not. charge. Ben <laughs> <laughs> Weatherford. Little oh. Mofo not in charge. <laughs> <laughs> L-M-F-N-C. N-I-C. And me. So what's up, fellas? How's it going? How's it going? What's up? Yep. I'm trying to trying to convince my wife to go see Weird Al Yankovic with me next month. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if it's going to happen. So, there's two people in this world, those who get Weird Al Yankovic and those who don't. So I, I, didn't, I just need to see Amish Paradise once in concert. <laughs> see, a, I, I y'all have, like them or not? I love no, them. I, I, I used to love Weird Al. I, I mean, oh, man. Watch Back Amish in the Paradise. Day. That's my yeah. karaoke jam. If I'm at a karaoke place, <laughs> even if they don't have it, I'll sing it. <laughs> Just right, well, of paradise. I'll, I'll, CSM I'll 2023. As I walk does. through the valley where I harvest my grain, I take a look at my wife and realize she's very plain. Nailed it. Y'all look at me <laughs> like everyone in the club when I sing it. All right. Well, everyone's been traveling a ton. I just got back from Extremity War Injuries in DC. That's that's an awesome time. It's a nice bourbon fest at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel. So it was sweet. Um, I didn't tell you guys, I, I did the BFR update. Uh, and, and this is the DOD orthopedic side of the house, AOSSM, orthopedic trauma, orthopedic hand. So all the ortho academies were there. Adam Ans presented his um, BFR and orthobiologics there. Oh, so nice. It was cool. We did orthobiologics in general, and then he ended it with BFR kind of like almost like this is kind of the one promise. Well, they are all promising, but he did all his cancer drugs they're using with it, um, as well as just exercise and then BFR just to see, does it equal equalize the, the orthobiologic load? Not does it work right now? He's just trying to get the, lo- the what's in the, the vial to be as equal as possible. So it's pretty cool. Then Jim Bradley came on after that. And you think I speak fast. That dude, man. He he got 30 minutes of a talk into 10 minutes, which um, was pretty unbelievable. My head blew up when it was done. So you guys got crazy anything planned? Me. Crazy to me what? to have 10 minutes for a talk. <laughs> I know 10 <laughs> minutes. And lead time for question and answer. I did a talk in New York for the Limb Lengthening and Reconstruction Society, six minutes, and I had to share it with um, with one of our ortho surgeons. So we got three minutes each. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, so well, I have like four slides. Okay. The, the big question I have is how many slides did you fit into 10 minutes? Because I'm guessing in the neighborhood of 25, 30. I've got, I've got it right here. I don't count. I just kind of guesstimate. <laughs> 39. <laughs> so, well, I know, I know, I know. I made you like twelve slides for three studies. So, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> just thirty-nine. But there was a title slide and an ending slide, so it was really thirty-seven. Oh, so yeah. I was good, man. I had time to spare. Outliers. Yeah, yeah. And I was the last talk of the whole damn conference, so that's always. Oh, were you really? Yeah, yeah. It was good though. Everyone was still there. You see, that can be that can be bad. That can be like where that can be the throwaway talk, Johnny. You know, at the end. yeah, I've, I've been that. That's for sure. Probably yeah. will be again. I did a orthopedic trauma association talk. The only rehab talk, the last talk on a Sunday afternoon. There was two oh. people in the audience, Joe Shu and one of my interns. That was it. Brutal. <laughs> I, I came up and I was like, do y'all, y'all want to do this? Like, y'all want to just like <laughs> talk it out a little bit? Uh, Oh my god! 
Johnny, I have a I have a confession to make. I I owe you oh, an apology. Can you? Mm-hmm. I, I know. I feel. I actually feel like maybe a tiny bit bad about this, but last podcast with Adrian, you referenced a yarn, and I was like, no, this is not this not a thing. But then I can't help myself. My mom instilled this in me to like go look stuff up. So I looked up a yarn, and sure enough, it is. It means to tell a long or implausible story. So I, I know, I know. I even look at the history of it. Apparently, comes from like fishermen or something, where they would repair rope and they would tell stories while they repaired the rope, and so it evolved into spinning a yarn. To Jesus tell Christ, you need a story. girlfriend, dude. I mean, that's you I know it's Google. It's Google. I mean that too, but it's Google. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, but I, I felt bad, so I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to just, you know, apologize in front of everybody. I, I'm, I'm pretty embarrassed that I broke out the term a yarn, um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's not 1942. Oh, Apparently, well. I tell really long and probable stories. So it there you go. Well, well thanks, I'm, man. I, I like to feel justified. I'm just happy with the substitute on this podcast of instead of a you know having an accent that you're going to try you went in and and, and uh, did a, a little bit of a rap intro for us so dude, yeah I, 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 that sets the bar a little bit higher I, I don't know what to expect moving forward now i've done two accents i've done nas the rapper I, you know that was my <laughs> best accent and i did a i did an amish guy yeah, yeah. I mean, that was my best yeah. amish accent i could do so yeah <laughs> <laughs> I like how you, had, how you had to say Nas the rapper. <laughs> I know. Well, I was worried. You know, yeah. if I just said Nas, not everyone would know. Yeah. So, which is a sad thing, but you should. Dilmatic. All right. Let's go into this. So, the first thing um, not all people respond to BFR. So, just when you're looking at these studies and you're like, they have an N of 12 and six of those are in a control. Um, you know, there's going to be some responders and, and some non-responders with, with everything we do. So we have to take that into account. And, and Kyle, I actually listened to the podcast you sent um, from the PT Inquest guys, Eric and them. Nice. And um, man, I thought my jokes were bad. Jesus Christ. Oh, those yeah. guys, They're... man. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, yeah. JW um, is like king of uh, dad joke and puns. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's grandpa joke, actually. Um yeah. But anyways, you want to touch base on that study um, real quick, but I mean, it basically it's a no duh thing, but it's pretty interesting. Yeah. So that was, a, it was a, um, a review paper uh, looking at just kind of all these Cochrane reviews of medical interventions um, and basically <laughs> showing that nine out of 10 medical interventions, we do not have high quality evidence for. And now this isn't, musculoskeletal interventions yeah yeah Yeah. and so it's not like rehab stuff um necessarily but um just you know more than anything really kind of highlighting um i think you know and i thought they did a pretty good job on that podcast of kind of saying you know it's like you were just kind of introing it's very hard to do um medical research period you know Um, regardless of of what area of, of research you're in. And so um, the vast majority of things that we do um, have pretty, pretty poor evidence. I think the, like, there's a, well, I can't remember the goofy name of it, but there's a study going on right now, just specifically with regard to ACL and looking at the evidence around ACL reconstruction, rehabilitation, that sort of thing. And at best, 
we have like moderately good evidence for like even exercise after ACL yeah. reconstruction. So Which on the is- whole, evidence is really pretty poor uh, when it comes to medicine in general. So yeah, and especially nine out of 10 studies, uh, that sucks. Well, you, yeah. you know, show me a Cochrane review that has a conclusion that this, this actually freaking works. Um, yeah. It's always just like, yeah, more studies are needed. Once again, these all kind of sucked, um, not high level. So that's, I, right. that's again, you know, the further you get from the, from the shore, the deeper the water gets type of thing, you know, you think, you know, it all. And then over time you start to see, man, there's so much that we don't know. And that's why I think just understanding basic physiology um, and, and just starting to understand these, these pathways and, and those things is a, a little bit empowering. And, and then you just can kind of hope some of the clinical stuff will, will tag along. You know? All right. Well, the first one we're going to talk about is Zach Dunkel's presentation. So the way we do things, we, um, we take papers and we have a little journal breakdown um, it's something, a little form that we use at the Center for the Intrepid, and we say, this is your paper, and you break it down, and then Kyle bitches that we didn't break it down enough, um, <laughs> and we're just copying and pasting, and come I may on. as well have read the paper the way you guys do this crap. <laughs> wait, I'm like, wait, I, dude, it, I put a lot of, like, did you, you read all? Did. And I, did. I, yeah. and I use, like, 16.5. I don't know if you mofos noticed that. I can barely <laughs> read y'all's. It is so, so small. So here's the and deal. I bolded it. I bolded this it. This is the reason why that is. It was super strict. Exactly, Ben. So Johnny, when he sent that out, yeah. for whatever reason, the entire thing is super scripted. And uh, <laughs> I just, I realized that like the a couple of these reviews I did ago, I'm like, what in the hell? Why is this like, dude, I'm at like a hundred percent. And I'm like, dude, I can barely read this. And then I was like, dude, like, what is so going on? Small. And so I changed the size and it doesn't really do anything. And then yeah. like, for some reason I went to superscript something and it undid it. And I was like, this whole thing is superscripted. Yeah. Well, yeah, y'all could have that. unsuperscripted it when you sent it out to me. So I was dying reading it. Well, well, let me just let me go back for a second and just say that I, I think we all did a great job of copying and pasting things. And, and I don't think Kyle was upset that we didn't do a good job of breaking it down. It was just that we didn't break it down the way that he breaks it down. Oh, no, know? no, no. Yeah. My issue was yeah. you didn't break it down at all. I'm like, all right, that is the damn <laughs> abstract. You just copied and pasted it for the summary. I'm like, oh, this isn't helping me at all. So, you know me, I got to like, I need like columns and stuff and I got to try to visualize this because if I'm just reading in the paper, it's like I start going cross-eyed and then I start falling asleep. So anyway, you just all worked up because I called you and you were like looking at Zach's or something. And, you know, I was like, what's up, man? He's like, ah, Jesus, just looking at Z's like breakdown of this thing. And I'm not sure he even broke it down. Uh, (laughs) It was, oh, that was the, uh. Yeah, no, because I was, I thought Zach had oh, broken down a paper and we were talking about something different. So, yeah, but that was Friday. I can, I can, tell, you, you I can tell you what happened on Friday. Let me, let me tell you. So, I got the screenshots. I got the receipts. No, I, no, I sent it to you. Nothing you know. to do. That, this is the reason why you got worked up on Friday. And I didn't realize this until Sunday. Oh, this is about to be a Braves baseball so, thing right now. I so I was, happening. you know, I was yeah, in uh, Indianapolis. Is, here we go. Uh, this weekend. And whenever I teach, I try to get the first flight out of the city to get back to Atlanta. So I roll back into the ATL 
Yeah, it's a nice thing to do. So I, I roll back into Atlanta seven in the morning or so, and I'm walking down the concourse. If you ever been to Atlanta, you know, like it's a huge airport. I'm walking down the concourse and I'm like, hey, gum, what do I see here? And I'm like, gee whiz. I'm like, you people from Texas are pretty prideful individuals. And I had known this. I've only been to Texas one time in my life, but I, I get that impression. So I see these two people with these uh, Houston Astro jerseys and hats on. And I said, you Sir. got some nerve. You got some nerve showing up in the home of the world champs. Oh, boy. Who just hey. beat that ass last year in the World Series on the verge of a sweep right now. And they said, you know what, man, we're leaving before the brooms come out. And I said, I don't blame you at all. And uh, that is 100% while Kyle was so worked up because uh, he knew <laughs> what was going to happen uh, last weekend. Hey, I just, I want to win in October. I don't care about, I don't care about right now. I want to win in October. That's yeah, all well, I'm saying. Didn't happen last year. This is going to be, I wake up in the morning and I have 90,000 freaking group texts from you two. Um, y'all can just <laughs> take me out of those. <laughs> no. Uh, it's like a play-by-play of these damn games that I'm not even watching. You know, I, 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 well, we did. We we were in a side conversation Saturday. Yeah. All right. Well, good. Good. Thank you. Yeah, I All didn't right, know that they were doing that extra innings things the way they are. I hadn't really watched, hadn't seen that yet. So that was Back on task, Kyle. Oh, yeah, BFR. Bro. Yeah, on yeah. task, man. So the first one is from our friends at Henry Ford. Um, we trained quite a few people up there. And so, again, the, when we look at these papers, it's not breaking down any any one person or institution. It's just we want to look at what the results might have missed um, from a methodology standpoint. And so this is prehab with BFR. And so just a you know, the easiest thing with prehab for BFR is it makes sense that if someone's going in for surgery, um, they're going to be losing some muscle volume and some muscle strength. So this is a nice way to do low load with blood flow restriction um, when they're probably still having a painful joint. There's other things, though, and, and Alan Kaysen's probably done the most work at this is, you know, you know, if you can just maybe get in a few sessions, I think they did like five, right, um, pre-ACL. Um, that they were able to mitigate the loss of, of capillary capillary beds and in, in the thigh muscle and, and keep quad endurance at that four week time point. And that builds on a theory from Alex Franz, who's our, our friend over in Germany, we're about to have on the podcast, that the metabolic stress just from surgery and a tourniquet alone um, can cause problems and that this is almost like ischemic preconditioning. So get the cuff on them pre-surgical and, and maybe you're you're getting the, the limb ready for that ischemic event. So that's the prehab piece. Don't have a lot of studies, but Z, I'll let you go on into to what this paper is and we can kind of discuss it. Yeah, so that's, that's exactly it. Whenever we, you know, we have someone who's injured, um, the goal is, you know, is to either get surgery as fast as possible or if there's gonna be a delay between the injury and surgery, is to get them in and do some prehab to kind of, um, you know, address pain, swelling, range of motion, and then maintain as much muscle quality and quantity as possible and, and preferably increase that going into the surgery so that we're not um, facing an additional uphill battle coming out of the surgery. So what these guys did was ultimately they took 45 individuals who had torn their ACL, and we don't really know at what point in time the ACL was torn compared to when they were enrolled into the study. Um, you, you could assume somewhat that they were um, removed from the actual injury just simply based off pain 
uh, pain in, um, uh, between, in, in both groups was around like two to three points on the pain scale. So they enrolled these individuals into a two-week home exercise program, which um, what you get out of the paper is this is like a standard of care for these surgeons. And um, so one group just did their standard home exercise program, and the other group did their standard home exercise program with BFR uh, over this two-week period, and it was performed five days a week. Um, the, the exercises that they were performing was a quad set, a straight leg raise flexion, um, a long arc quad, and then a bilateral uh, mini squat or quarter squat. Uh, set rep scheme was a set of 30, three sets of 15. The load that they used initially started out as body weight and then um, progressed as they could complete the last set of 15. Um, within that last set of 15, they were encouraged to go to the point of failure or um, go for two minutes. And so basically whatever came first. So if you exercise in that last set of 15 for two minutes, then you were done. Or if you reached failure, you were done. Um, outcomes were collected at the initial clinical visit. And then again, two weeks later. So everybody that was enrolled into the study had surgery scheduled two weeks following that initial clinical visit. Uh, outcome measures um, that they were collecting was a patient reported outcome measurement information system as a promise measurement, which I'm not super familiar with, but it's from what I've gathered, it's kind of like an outcome measure that they use. Um, they measured pain, uh, range of motion, and then on the muscle side of things, they measured limb circumference, uh, 15 centimeters proximal to the patella, and then they measured uh, isometric joint torques on the knee extensor at um, 90 degrees of flexion with a handheld dynamometer, handheld. Uh, yeah. and they collected, um, or they specifically were measuring and, and assessing uh, peak torques and then average torques of the knee extensors. What'd they find? So ultimately what we get out of this is um, on, on the outcome measure side, there's no differences between groups, strength measurements. Uh, there was no difference between groups, uh, limb circumference. There was um, no difference between groups, no difference um, from baseline to the two week follow-up. Um, and I, I think interesting enough, what is to point out is uh, joint torques significantly decreased um, on the involved side as well as the uninvolved side in both groups. Uh, the BFR group decreased uh, 16 newton meters, and then um, the, con the control group, I think, was around 14 uh, newton meters, 15 newton meters. So pretty much the same regression. Uh, that Percent-wise, that translated to roughly 13% from baseline. Uh, and then I, I think where the, 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 the big thing from this, um, that's probably one of the most sur surprising things, uh, was the uninvolved side had a significantly greater reduction in joint torques. Um, on a percentage basis, the, the non-involved side regressed 30% um, compared to the... Uh, um, the involved side, which is just something with disuse that we just have not seen over that short of a period. Um, so typically with all the disuse papers that we have, whether it's a one week disuse immobilization study, if it's a two week disuse immobilization study, we don't see the um, non-immobilized limb 
either demonstrate atrophy, anabolic resistance, or a loss in strength, uh, let alone uh, double the loss in strength that we see out of the, uh, uh, the, the immobilizer, the involved side. Um, one of the big things that, um, that they claim significance on in this paper was based off a limb symmetry index. That limb symmetry index at baseline was around 76 to 78%. Um, at, at the two-week follow-up period, limb symmetry index was around 98%. So basically, um, it appears if you just look at a limb symmetry index, we are doing really good going into the surgery. This is the big problem that we have with limb symmetry indexes, um, that this, this really kind of um, shows and demonstrates. We didn't do anything necessarily to make the bad leg good. We just made the good leg bad. Um, mm -hmm. we have seen that and it's a big issue in post-op rehab, um, Wells Ant and Lynn Snyder Mackler did a, a paper at six months that showed when we base a limb symmetry index purely based off post-operative numbers uh, at six months, I think it was like 50 some percent meta, meta limb symmetry index of 90%. But then when we base a limb symmetry index based off of pre-surgery numbers on the good side, it's down into the twenties that meet yeah. that limb symmetry index of 90. And that's ultimately why I think we're, you see people move away from a limb symmetry index purely because it's, it doesn't really do much for us because we have this regression in strength on the good side. Unless you base it on baseline. That, that, that's right. Unless you have yeah. a good solid baseline measurement, a limb symmetry index is not going to be valuable to us. Yeah. Um, and so you know, that, that's kind of, uh, you know, the, the big results that, that they um, mentioned in there. Um, and, you know, within their conclusion, they, they talk about how it was accessible and, and it was feasible. Um, and, and certainly it's, it's feasible. Um, but, you know, I think one of the big questions you have to ask is, are, are these results acceptable? And so, you know, it, it's feasible in the context of, yes, people can do that. But should we accept a 13% decrease in strength when, you know, if we just simply added a few more visits to that initial clinical visit, and we did a total of four visits during that um, prehab period, that two-week prehab period, we potentially could have maintained um, strength in that leg and potentially increased it um, from where we were at at the initial clinical visit. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, the kind of guidance that we give out. And that's what came out of Jeremy Lenneke's systematic review in 2012 was two to three times a week is an optimal frequency. So if we just kind of squeezed out three more visits in that pre-op period, we could have had um, a potentially better response. Um, and then um, you look at... And you're meaning, Zach, if I could... You're meaning three additional visits because they had one clinic visit. They had to basically they one, one teach clinic. them a home exercise program. And, and your point is if they would have just come in to clinic a second time that first week and yep. then a couple of times the next week, you know, the, you know, just that and hitting, hitting, of course, our exercise targets, which I'm sure we'll get yep. to um, that, that would have theoretically translated to at least kind of holding steady them, not losing yep. any, any, any strength in the involvement. Yeah, yeah, that's the big thing, you know, and it's they only did one visit prior to the surgery. And, and the big problem that you have with that is um, you're assuming that they know how to do it. 
you know, you, you give it, you teach them one time. And then how many times if you're in the clinic, do you have a patient come back and you're like, show me your home exercises that you've been doing. And they resemble absolutely nothing close to what you've actually taught them. You know, God forbid they're pendulums. You know, and, that, and that's the thing is that there needs to be at least at the very minimum one follow up visit because and, and the reason for that not is not only is to make sure they're doing their exercise correctly because you take a squat. I, I, I just I have a very strong suspicion that the squat was heavily loaded into the the the, the opposite leg. Uh, it, it was it was uh, offloaded into that side. Well, can we hunch. can we ban quarter squat squats? I mean, why <laughs> yeah, are... I don't necessarily know why we're doing that for the leg, but quarter um, of the rep, quarter of the results, yeah. basically is where we are. <laughs> well, and you know, and, other than the you know the exercises they did not being that effective. I mean, just the loading in general, starting at a body weight loading, we yeah. know that that's going to be an underdosed load and letting people in a home exercise program guide their own progression of exercise intensity is going to be a failure in, in the vast majority yeah. of people. Yeah. So Ben, that, that's a solid point, man. And, and that's exactly it. You know, you, you take a look at, they started out with a body weight exercise. So let's just focus on the long arc quad is, is people may disagree, but I can tell you that my own personal opinion, a quad set without neuromuscular stem is absolutely pointless. Um, so there's that. Um, and I mean, how are we going to progress a quad set? Please send your emails to. Zach <laughs> I mean, you know, dude, I mean, we, we have like some actual issue studies that use isometric um, quad sets, glute sets, yeah. ankle, you know, isometrics, and it doesn't really do much for us. Uh, yeah. So there is that. So then you get into the loading aspect of it. And there was no discussion of loads. Um, we don't know what the form of resistance was, whether it was a band or whether it was cuff weights. Why that tends to be important is when you look at this is this is going to be strength purely based off the joint torque that was collected. So the peak peak joint torque, they don't tell us what the lower leg length was. They just tell us what the length of the entire leg was, which, you know, is not really helpful with this. But I would, I think it's a safe assumption to say that an average lower leg will say is 32 centimeters. And so from there, when you take and you figure out their joint torques, it comes out to being 71 pounds, 30% of 71 pounds is going to be 21 pounds. Um, now, why is it important whether we use the band? Well, a gold TheraBand, which is the strongest TheraBand out there, gives you a roughly 22 pounds of tension at 200% elongation. So we've literally maxed out the strongest TheraBand at the start of the, the, the deal. Um, and then if you're going to give people cuff weights, how, how much, like you're yeah. strapping two 10-pound cuff weights to this person's ankle? Like how many how many people like in a clinic have access to that many cuff weights that they can just hand out to their, uh, to people doing an home, a home exercise program. So that, that's kind of the deal. And, and then just rounding all the loading um, aspect out. One of the big benefits of BFR is it lowers the threshold to get an effective stimulus to the muscle. It, it will lower the threshold. However, there's still a basement. Like you still have to load. And, you know, there was a paper from out of Old Miss um, with Buckner was lead author, but that was Jeremy Lenicky's group. Um, and they just, they did elbow flexion and it was loaded um, 
at, at either 70% with no pressure or 15% with no pressure, 15% with 40% limb occlusion pressure, 80% limb occlusion pressure. And what we see from this is when you lift at a low load with or without a tourniquet, there was no change in strength over an eight week period. Um, and the gains in muscle mass was suboptimal compared to lifting at the heavier load. So th there is a, a lower threshold. So we, just because you put the cuff on doesn't mean magic happens and we don't actually have to forget about loading. You, you still have to load that individual. Um, right. That's the, that's the big thing. Um, and then the last thing too, like I hit on with the results is the range is huge. Um, yeah, I there was a really, dynamometer problem, I believe. Yeah, I don't remember ever seeing a range that encompasses the mean. Um, and this not only encompassed the mean, but it was like two, a peak three, torque was two times to three over. times the mean. Yeah. And average torque was two and a half to four times the mean. Um, so the, the, the variance in, um, strength the measurements and, and torques that they gathered was, it was rather large. I think, yeah, you look right at that. That's the table and you're like, okay, you know, that the average change was minus 15% in the control group with a range of almost 50, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that's, that's who's ever doing these dynamometer measurements. Um, you know, and dynamometry is, is hard to get down when you're using handheld, you know, we had to go through all these validation trials and our yeah. femur fracture study and make sure we all got within the same standard deviations. And, you know, are you strapping them in? Right. And, and it was probably just a, you know, I just pushed in push, 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 you know, they're not using a strap or doing some sort of break versus make test. So that that's an issue. And I think, there's two out of our four that are home health studies or not home health, home-based studies. And this might be something, you know, it'd be great if we can do it, but this might be something that's really hard to do with blood flow restriction. Cause you ask these injured people to do two things, to go to a muscular failure and somehow make sure you have enough weight around to do that. Yeah. And by the way, also put a tourniquet on your leg and, and go through the, the suck of BFR at the same time. And you're just hoping after you show them one time that they did that five days a week for two weeks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, like I said, I mean, yeah, I, I think the potential is to do, I think you potentially could do it as a home exercise program, but you, you, you have to have like check-ins. You, mm -hmm. you just can't do it once and then do a free for all of, and then like, you know, Hey, we're just going to reassess everything in two weeks. Yeah. So, and it seems like they had a shift in their hypothesis because if you go to clin trials, the, the primary aim was quad strength. Yep. But then if you, if you look at the hypothesis in the paper, it's hypothesized that patients who complete BFR prehab will have similar strength and PROs as low load, but yeah. it will be safe. <laughs> so it was like, oh, they'll, they'll be the same as both groups, but it's going to be safe. And a little bit of something that does nothing is always going to be safe doing nothing is probably going to be pretty safe so if you're just getting a cuff on them maybe they're putting on maybe they're not um you know the, the cuffs they use could be in question as well on this study so uh, these are some of the potential reasons why bfr did not beat low load in this scenario yeah cool. yep agreed any other things on that one you guys want to break down and th this does look like uh, it was maybe like an ortho resident type project. If you're looking who, who was, you know, as resident kind of driven. So 
Um, it could also be that, you know, the, the rehab side wasn't quite as involved um, as, as maybe they could have been. Not sure uh, making a jump there, but, but that could also be it. So, okay. I would say if you're going to get some prehab at this point, um, if you're doing it at home, it might be tough. If you can get them in the clinic, I think it'd be better. Alan Kaysen had another paper where they did three times a week for three weeks. It showed mm -hmm. really nice gains in quad, yeah. in quad strength. Uh, pre ACL, yeah, that was, and that was just four, nine visits. Four, fourteen percent at, at yeah. isokinetically at sixty degrees per second with a yeah. um, four or five percent increase in um, you know muscle mass out of the quad. So yeah, and that was in clinic. So I, I would go with that paper from a prehab perspective. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. One down. We still yeah. we love you, Henry Ford. Uh, we just had uh, we just have to talk about that one paper there. Mm -hmm. And the guys and what they're doing in the clinic is obviously over the top. Kyle Kimbrell, you're up. Oh, I've just been anxiously waiting. Well, uh, hurry the hell so, up. what's that? I said, well, hurry the hell up. Hurry the hell up. I know. Um, so, we wanted to talk about this Iverson ACL paper that's been out for a while, came out 2015, but this was performed. <clears throat> post-op ACL. So they ultimately their goal was to kind of try to replicate the findings of, of Takarada, which was in about 15 years prior. That's crazy. 20, that 22 years ago, that paper came yeah. out. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's nuts. Um, you know, because Takarada, they showed that they were really able to kind of keep some muscle around sort of in that early, early time post-op, which is, you know, generally sort of our, our mindset on, on the BFR side of things is, all right, let's just try to get as much muscle on people pre-op and then let's try to keep it around post-op because you're in this period of, of relative disuse for sure. And of course, we know that those first two weeks really are, are critical because that's going to be the most kind of severe time for. for so these papers or especially Takarada's was kind of a self-swelling approach or passive BFR, yep. just getting a tourniquet on, trying to get, you know, back in, it would 22 years ago, there wasn't a lot of LOP happening. So they were just pumping it up as high as they could to hopefully be at hundred percent occlusion and just get a kind of a Kubota type response of slowing down muscle loss. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So you, so you have, you know, a few different papers that have used that kind of five minute inflation, three minute deflate, repeat that five times, do that twice a day, every day for, you know, around two weeks or so, which is essentially what, what Takarada did. Um, so Iverson tried to build on that. You know, they, they said kind of in their, uh, in their intro that they wanted to look at athletes specifically to see if, if this maybe affected them any differently. So that they, they made sure, I don't know, they didn't really define athlete um, very well. So I don't know what that really meant, but that's kind of what they said. Um, they did this five on three off five on, um, protocol as well, but they added exercise to it. So they started at two days post-op. They did a quad set, kind of started with a quad set. Then as people were able, they progressed to a short arc quad, which is if you're unfamiliar, it's just like bolster under the knee doing kind of like a terminal knee extension. So a very kind of shortened range, probably about a, at most like a 30 degrees of range of motion knee extension kind of exercise and then progressed up to a straight leg raise 
But during that five minute inflation, they would do a maximum repetitions of 20 reps. So at, at most, your uh, most intense exercise is going to be 100 reps of a straight leg raise for a given kind of time frame. And then you might repeat that in the afternoon. So at most, you're going to get like, say, 200 reps of, of a straight a leg lot. raise there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, and who knows how quickly people got to that point. Uh, we don't, we don't necessarily know that. Um, and so you get the one group doing it with BFR, the, their control group doing it, of course, without BFR. And then they take cross-sectional area measurements via MRI and see who loses the most amount of muscle. So 12 people in each group, seven male, five female uh, in, in both groups. They used a 14 centimeter wide Delphi tourniquet that they fashioned a hand pump to for, the, for adding, adding pressure. Um, and they started people out at 130 millimeters of mercury. And then they progressed the pressure that was being used every other day by 10 millimeters of mercury until they maxed out at 180 millimeters of mercury. But subjects were, because this was again, another home-based protocol, subjects were allowed to reduce that, that pressure um, if they didn't tolerate it. So if they got to, let's say up to 170, you know, and they didn't tolerate going to 180, they could stay at 170 kind of thing. Um, Again, twice a day. The, the nice thing here that um, they did was they did do some follow-up visits like Zach was talking about to just try to ensure that people were doing the protocol correctly. So they did a follow-up visit at day five and then a second follow-up visit at day 10. They, they, you know, they said subjects were inclined at 45 degrees. I don't know that that really matters a whole lot for what they were doing, um, but it was just something that they repeated multiple times in there. Um, and the only other thing too, was like the control group didn't do any sort of a sham. So they didn't like put a cuff on and just like inflate it to a very low level or, or just put a cuff on and not inflate it. So uh, one group was actually putting a cuff on the limb. The other, the other group was not. And so then they took MRI of the quad at two days pre-op. And then I, I, I showed y'all the two fingers so that you understood for the podcast listeners um and then then they took mris at day 16 so two days after the protocol had finished um and basically they found that there was no difference between the groups in terms of how much muscle was lost in fact when you really kind of look at the numbers the the groups were almost like kind of exactly the same in terms of of how much muscle they lost. So that's kind of where they, where they shook out. It looked like this inflate deflate that, you know, prevented some strength loss for a couple different Kubota papers um, and prevented some muscle size loss for the Kakehi paper and the Takarada papers. Um, looks like it doesn't work in, in this scenario. Um, it is only the second kind of clinical paper that's looked at this. So it's basically really kind of comparing as close as we can to that, that Takarada paper. Um, <clears throat> I did, I really like just 
the paper as a whole because I thought that they did a really great job. Number one of they only looked at one thing. All they looked at was cross-sectional area of the muscle, which is great from like a research perspective because once you start adding secondary aims, you start getting a lot of false positives and, and different things like that. So I thought that that was really great um, and not something that we really ever see right now, um, but something that people that really kind of go into the weeds in terms of- That's what Takarata did too, right? I, I think so. That sounds right. Yeah, I, I believe so. Um, and, you know, and that's, uh, that's a good thing. Um, uh, need kind of more of that. Um, and then I liked just their limitation section. Like I felt like they really kind of went through and, and laid out sort of, Hey, look, you know, one of the things we didn't do was we didn't individualize the pressure. Um, they, they did, however, you know, kind of sort of defend their, their choice in pressure just by saying, you know, the, um, Compared to the Takarata paper, we think we probably were a, a bit higher. Um, and Laurentino had also done kind of a, a similar paper where they actually confirmed at that 130 millimeter mercury number that they lost pulse at least. Um, and so they kind of felt like they were using a relatively high pressure. Um, you could make the argument that's probably too high for some of those individuals in there. Or um, too low. I mean, or, or could be too low. I mean, I'm a, if, if, if you're saying like Takarata wanted to be at hundred percent occlusion, they're using 240 and uh, they did use a narrower cuff, but 130 with a Delphi cuff on me. I mean, that's, I'm like at 60% maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the um, other piece there is we're comparing pressures across different regulation of pressure with different devices. If it's a computerized tourniquet applying the pressure versus a hand pump that Hand pump telling you it's 130. Obviously, we know from other things may not really mean that's the pressure you're getting. Well, I don't even worry about that. Then I, I, I look at it more like they looked at the cessation of pulse versus if you're using the Delphi, you're getting full limb occlusion. You know, so I think you know you're you're going to have some variability there. Number one, um, I mean, it, I, it probably would have been a higher pressure um, if they had just auscultated for pulse rather than palpated, which I don't I don't remember. Actually, I think they might have auscultated for pulse, but um, I mean, we know there's going to be a difference there from, from Delphi's work. So, um, but nonetheless, they, you know, they listed this as a limitation, you know, they're like, we think we're probably high-ish. Um, we could argue that till the cows come home because they didn't actually measure. Um, they, you know, they kind of were critical of their means of measuring cross-sectional area. They said, you know, we took these cross-sections at 40 and 50% femur length versus kind of an overall muscle volume, which is generally kind of thought to be superior. Um, I guess, you know, like Springbok, of course, now we have that technology that would be kind of cool to, to be able mm -hmm. to use in something, in something like this. Um, they had a small sample size, of course. I mean, this is a clinical paper, and so smaller those small sample sizes can get can get problematic. Um, they didn't have much of any training load at all in terms of what they were lifting. They just literally like the weight of the limb. There's no effort target. It's just like do these 20 reps, and so you know, even at full occlusion, 20 reps of a straight leg rise, it might kind of suck, but it's probably not the worst thing you've ever done in your life. Um, it's certainly not on par with like what Kaysen and those guys did in like a prehab fashion. Um, and they didn't really 
they, they did say that their patients tracked what they did, um, but they didn't report that. So, you know, we kind of don't know, okay, did everybody really get to this high pressure? Did they use that high pressure every visit? Um, that sort of thing. So, and then, and then lastly, they, you know, the, they kind of fashioned their own sort of hand pump device. And so we just, like Ben was saying, we don't know, we don't know how accurate that was in terms of putting pressure into the cuff. We don't know if it, if it held pressure. Um, I mean, if you leave the regulator attached, we know those regulators will leak. Um, did they, did they fashion something up so that it sealed up that cuff? They just didn't confirm any of those things for us. So, so there's question in terms of number one, the magnitude of the initial pressure. And then there's of course questions in terms of how much pressure did actually go into the cuff and did it, and did it hold that pressure while they, while they had it on? Yeah. The, the Delphi cuff isn't made to have a, you know, you buy a big manometer and stick it into it and pump it up. So um, when we talked to the Delphi the Western clinical engineers, you know, they were kind of shaking their head at the thought of doing that. And the, the unregulated piece can really potentially change what your pressures are. So that's, that's a big unknown. If we're looking at this, you know, they, they just did a little sample, a few reps. Um, and in the rest period, it dropped 50 millimeters of mercury, um, when they had it unregulated like that. So there's a, there's a lot of variability and potentially what was going on in that cuff by using a little hand pup type thing. But then once again, I think one of the, the, the second study here where it's a home health, home health, I keep saying that home-based study where you're asking people to put a cuff on twice a day and do 200 straight leg raises. Um, and so if these are younger athletes, I know if I had my, my high school daughter, she would not do that crap at all. She won't even do, you know, one page of homework. So did they follow through on this is, is always the question. Cause the Takarata study, they didn't mention it specifically, but it does look like it was a hospital based study, you know, cause they're, if you look at their flow design, it's, they went in, they put the cuffs on these people did that. And as you said, at like nine o'clock and then they did it again at four o'clock. And then it says, and then we had them go to sleep at six o'clock until this time. And they got this many hours of sleep. So that was a super controlled study where you're pretty certain these and people are getting that dose. That study was done in Japan, right? Mm -hmm. Which yeah. would fit with their, like their medical model from what I understand. Like you're basically hospitalized uh, after I don't know. Various yeah. different things. Yeah, I only learned that because I've got a buddy that's from Japan, and so he was kind of telling me he's like, you know, rehab in Japan is so different than it is in the U.S. Like you're hospitalized for an ACL reconstruction, you know. Yeah, so I, I think you're probably right about that. That's probably how it how it kind of laid out. So. Yeah. Well, it's that's where we're seeing on the last two. You know, Alan Kaysen three times a week for three weeks monitored BFR study. They saw yeah. pretty nice changes prehab send them home, uh, we'll give them one time to, to do it and tell us you're going to do it. Um, no change. And this one, no difference either. When you just say, go home with this little hand puppy rigged up thing and do this twice a day compared yeah. to monitoring. So again, I don't know, man, BFR might not be a home-based thing. It might not be, be you know, um, be nice if it is. I like, I like that. They also kind of said, you know, we, we would suggest doing like a neuromuscular stem study, yeah. you know, which of course, yeah. you know, Jamie Burr's group has done, has done that. Um, so I thought that that was, that was really good. And, and I think there's other variables too. Like, you know, they were just saying in general, like when you look at our sample, they didn't seem to lose as much muscle as, 
the other groups yeah. in, in ACL studies. And so all of those things are going to kind of factor in. Um, I mean, I was thinking back to Jamie's birth study too, you know, they did that immobilization study and their, their inflate deflate group, they didn't really accomplish much in their inflate deflate group. They, they basically were no different than their control that did nothing. So, uh, you know, I, I think, think there's a minimum, there's questions about inflate deflate by itself. And, and the point mm-hmm. ultimately from us would be get these people exercising, get their muscle as active as you can. That might involve neuromuscular stem. That might be just activity. So. I think the thing with Jamie's to point out was there was no difference in the, um, between the cell swelling group and the control group in whole leg lean mass. Um, and what's really hard to, because there was a difference when you looked at uh, uh, muscle thickness via, via ultrasound. And the reason why I point that out is because he measured um, uh, muscle mass with a DEXA. And so you're not able to differentiate muscle groups with a DEXA. So you, you potentially could be getting input from other muscle groups in there too. Whole leg lean mass versus the diagnostic ultrasound, which specifically looked at vastus lateralis. But to, to your point, I think it's 100% on, on point is, uh, you, you got to do more than cell swelling, I.e. whether that's like combining it with neuromuscular stem. Um, and, and because that's what that study specifically showed. I mean, they went through, we're getting off topic in another study, but they went through two weeks of immobilization. And when you look at a diagnostic ultrasound, they pretty much hypertrophied the vastus lateralis. kind of crazy with, with with just going through and adding some neuromuscular stem to that cell swelling protocol. And then the other thing of it is too, um, I think it goes back to the, the original paper that I talked about with that prehab paper, it's about loading. And just like you said, you got to do as much as you can do with these individuals. There's never a point in time where you're just going to have someone come in, collect a copay and do some cell swelling passive BFR call today um, you know, you're going to do is like, you're always going to at least be able to do a straight leg raise to some extent and whatever that person can do from there. But if you're overall limited in the volume of exercises you can do, then that's where like the cell swelling with neuromuscular stem comes into play, I think. Um, and then ideally, um, getting away from that as soon as possible. And that's the, that's the thing too, um, you know, Jamie's most recent, that, that paper was a two week paper, but then he did, uh, his paper before that was a four times a week for six week paper. Um, and so saw good changes in leg strength, but dude, who's doing cell swelling for, um, for six weeks. You know what I mean? Like you just, you, you need to get in there and start loading that. Start stuff. loading. Yeah. So. That's a, that's a lab study. Yep. Cool. Any other takeaways on it, Kyle? Uh, no, I don't think so. I, I think we've, I feel like we kind of covered the, the bulk of it there. Yeah. Again, overall good paper. Um, yeah. and, and we liked the way they went about it and basically that protocol was no different than the protocol without BFR, which is different than another study that showed yeah. that there was some sparing. And so there were some differences between the two. So we'll call that a wash, but maybe um, could have used a better device and maybe you have to monitor your patient. Cool. Yep. Who's up now? Oh, I'm up. All right. Oh, <laughs> nice segue. All right. Yeah. Yep. All right. 
So I'm doing one from some friends of mine here. Um, this is from Ashish Betty's lab. Um, Ashish is a friend. He's a brilliant orthopedic surgeon and orthopedic researcher. He has a power lab up there at the University of Michigan. Um, the, the lead author was, was Michael Curran and Rianne Palmieri-Smith, who's also a, a really um, strong uh, researcher up in Ashish's lab, um, was on this paper as well as some others. And so I, I talked to Rianne was before they started this study because she, you know, kind of ran it by us and, and had some questions. They started this kind of in the early days um, when we were starting to look at blood flow restriction. When they published it, the title of it made some people kind of flip out and our freaking phones were, I remember Ben and I were in the office and people were like, dude, have you seen the study? It says BFR doesn't help the quad after ACL. Um, and, and that is not the point of this study. That is, that is not what this study, you know, really says. So you have to point out, here's the title. BFR applied with high intensity exercise. And so that's the thing I would highlight to anyone that, that points out the study as they combined it with a 70% of a one rep max with blood flow restriction does not improve quad muscle function after ACL reconstruction. What it, it, what it also means that second part does not improve quad muscle function after ACL reconstruction was that BFR is 70% of a one RM didn't do any better than a 70% of a one RM. And for a lot of people, then they were also like, well, no, duh, what were they thinking? And so with talking with Rianne initially, their, their thoughts were, were really genuine. And it's a, it's a good study to, to look at what they were looking at. So what they have been trying to do is crack that nut of, can you get some significant strength and size back in the quad in the, the later phases of ACL rehab. And they have been doing heavy eccentric quad work. They have this thing called the blast machine. It's a eccentric or concentric. You can kind of program whichever you want. Eccentric closed chain leg press, basically. And so they were doing 70% one RM eccentric training, and they were still finding that they were having quad deficits in her, in her earlier work. And so she said, you know, we don't know, but it'd be interesting if we put a BFR, if we put a cuff on and did that same 70% protocol, would this actually maybe get them over the hump? Maybe recruit a little bit more, you know, fast twitch, get a little bit more of this anaerobic metabolism. We have it on during the rest period. So maybe get a little extra boost to it. So we were like, that's, that's a pretty cool idea. We'll, you know, we'll see. So what they did is they had four groups. Um, the one group did just concentric is 70% 1RM. One group did eccentric at 70% 1RM. And then the other two did concentric or eccentric at 70% 1RM with blood flow restriction. They did four sets of 10 and they did it from week 10 to week 18. And they, um, they did it two times a week for, for eight weeks, basically. They did limb occlusion pressure at 80%. I mean, holy hell, dude. 70% 1RM, 80% LOP for four sets of 10. <laughs> and I talked to her after the study. I'm like, how many people were able to do that? And she said everyone was able to complete it. She was like, it was really hard, but they were able to complete it. Did she say something different, Ben? Well, no, I was just say one of the key pieces there, if you read that study real carefully, they say they deflated during every single rest period for the two minute rest in between sets. So they oh, didn't okay. leave it inflated between sets, which I think is a really important ah, piece yeah, that is important. to that. I mean, if you could get somebody to tolerate 80% limb occlusion pressure 
across the two minute rest also with 70% of an yeah. one RM. I'd like to meet that person. And Cause that's what hand. I was thinking. Why? Well, damn it. I blew, sorry, Kyle. I blew my journal uh, review already. Um, this is why I like my format of like, break it up so we can see it. So then, you know, like, exactly well, dude, I cut and pasted. It. I mean, I just must've missed it when I cut and pasted. I, I, I gave you props on your um, breaking down of things. In fact, I sent it to Ben. I said, Hey Ben, you see how Johnny did like this? Can you do a little bit of this? You didn't me? give me props. All you yeah. said was, I like the way you cut and paste the, the table into this. I'm going to use that. <laughs> you told Ben without I gave you props well, to he ben. said, he said hey, not to you. He said, Hey Ben, Johnny's better than yours. Can you make yours better? More and... like Johnny's. <laughs> I was a lot more colloquial in mine too. I was like, I think there's a lot that got lost totally in the sauce were. here. Yeah, so I, I was really trying to write as a as a good writer should. Okay, so that's a good point. So, dude, if you did have it on during the rest period, that third rest period at seventy percent one RM with the eccentric, well, both. Oh my God, that would that would be really hard. So then there's also like, well, you know, maybe BFR needs the concentric eccentric phase as well, but they they push the weight back. So if you're eccentric, you would push it back concentrically to the starting position at 20% of a 1RM. So they kind of did a BFR 20% 1RM or a light load 20% 1RM just to get the weight back to the starting point. Um, at the end of the day, there was no difference in strength gains between lifting heavy or doing lifting heavy with blood flow restriction. To us, that's a no-duh. Again, that wasn't the spirit of the study. The spirit of the study was, was maybe there is something there. It, this is just goes back to our point. If you can lift heavy, lift heavy. You're probably under blood flow restriction from that heavy load as well. Um, and throwing a tourniquet on probably isn't going to give you any extra juice there. What kind of does get lost in the sauce is, is people are like, well, both of these things don't work. Lifting 70% 1RM for for eight weeks didn't do anything for the muscle the, it did it slowed down or or they weren't positive in their ice kinetic strength scores compared to their their baseline measurement so they did a, a pre-operative measurement and then they did a measurement right before they started the intervention and then they did a measurement after the intervention so at the 18 week point and so if you look at the eccentric bfr group from what their strength was preoperative to at the end of doing BFR eccentrics, they were only down 8%. So they're at 92% strength at on average at, at um, that 18 week point, which that's not bad. You know, I don't, I don't think anyone would be like, dude, you're only 92% strong at 18 weeks. You know, it's kind of when the first thing I looked at, I was like, well, these numbers aren't that bad. When they looked at their clearance for return to play, that BFR eccentric group was at um, what, only had they were at seven percent increased strength compared to baseline so they were above baseline when they were cleared for return to play they were above baseline with concentric with bfr and they were ab above baseline with eccentrics alone the only loser the entire time was the concentric phase which which still stayed in the negative and also the loss of muscle size you know at, at 18 weeks compared to baseline um they had only lost 1.5 centimeters of, of muscle volume um, in, in the quad, uh, which, which again is not bad. So both of them worked, but it was probably just the heavy load in, in the entire group that worked. We can't say BFR did anything different because it didn't 
But that 10 weeks to 18 weeks lifting heavy is probably a great thing to do because these numbers aren't terrible. Um, and to Jesus, if I had those numbers with return to sport, good on you. But we know, you know, those folks in Michigan's do some do some good stuff. They they did throw out there, um, and and they don't have anything to back it up other than theory. But it, it might make sense. Is that um, uh, what I'll, I'll say the quote exactly? Uh, where was it? Uh, therefore, we contend that adding metabolic stress to the muscle of patients undergoing ACLR with BFR did not result in improvements in quadricep muscle function, as muscle protein synthesis was already high because of the large amounts of mechanical tension on the quad during these heavy leg press exercises. So they were saying, basically, if we're looking at a muscle protein synthetic response, you're already getting it from lifting heavy, and you're not going to get a little extra nudge from BFR in this as well. And they did also put out BFR is probably made for the early phases post-op. And that's exactly what we preach. And you know, we know that's what everyone understands. You know, I presented this at EWI. Um, I did I did six slides in 30 seconds on it. And um, but I also pointed out, you know, they they said it should be early phase. And I pointed out Brad Lambert was at EWI you know, his study that he, it was in the ideal range, their ACL study. It was basically about a week after surgery to 12 weeks, Eddie Chang and the Anova folks, I showed theirs as well. They, they started as soon as possible within around that first week and they did it for 12 weeks. That's the beautiful window right there is if you can do BFR that up to around the 10th or 12th week, as soon as you can right after surgery. So that's what I got on this one. Yeah. I mean, talking about the metabolic accumulation, there may not be that much to add, like we said, from adding BFR to something that's already heavy. And if you're not leaving it inflated during the rest period, it's probably not doing anything that's significantly different than just lifting heavy. Yeah. So that could be another, you know, if people could do it. Right. Well, yeah. and the other part of the this study that, I mean, at least there wasn't a difference between groups, but the way that they did their leg press, I think it's worth mentioning that they had a really short range of motion where oh, they yeah, actually yeah. applied the resistance, which was 20 to 60 degrees of range for the knee. Yeah. 40 um, degrees of range. Yeah. yeah. So it's 40 total degrees of, of motion, which just for adequate stress across a muscle may not be the best way to go about it. Um, yeah. You know, so that, that may just be another piece of some of the limitation here. Yeah. And they took all comers, I think. Right. Yeah. So yeah, meniscus all repair, yeah. Yeah. all graft types, meniscectomies. Um, so you know, that's probably more clinically relevant and they, and they pointed that out, but for a study, there might be some muddy in there. If you had someone who was six weeks limited weight bearing, cause they had a meniscus repair and then this starts doing this, but yeah, that I don't, I should have asked her, I don't know what the rationale would be of only going to 60 degrees flexion or even not going to full extension when you're on a closed chain. You guys have any thoughts? It could just be how the machine was set the up. The machine, and, yeah. And how it was set up. And then basically you may have like ran out of hip motion at that point. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, who knows? Uh, that, that's what I would speculate. Yeah. I don't yeah, know I why, mean, I don't know why exact, you wouldn't. They might just be reporting what people did. Not that we chose to do it this way, but this yeah. is just what people were able to do. It's a fair point. I think not something yeah. I thought of. No, I don't, I don't know why you wouldn't go to full extension though. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I guess that, that's, that's the piece yeah. like the flexion end I get. Um, but, uh, but yeah. yeah, 
Yeah, I think you well, can start. Oh, go ahead. And I, I forgot the other piece too is, you know, this was all about the quad and then you're doing a multi-joint and we know right. after ACL, your, your body's going to find a way to potentially not use it. And so, all right, bring in the emails and the hate, but along our quad, um, <laughs> well, yeah, that who's was... afraid of the big bad wolf? Um, that's, that's probably, you know, would be the, the, the more appropriate exercise. Right. Yeah. Although yeah. 70% 1RM. Oof. Yeah, I think that was my, my kind of one of my issues with the paper was, I mean, just from an exercise physiology perspective, it's, it's hard to know if these subjects were in fact doing enough exercise to expect to get adaptation, which is something that, you know, we have all kind of discussed internally, but all we know of their program is this one leg press exercise that was yeah. performed mm -hmm twice a week twice a week for eight weeks yeah and they did three twice. days a week of standard of care rehab as well right yeah, what yeah. So what we just don't know mean? what that was yeah right well, yeah and that's the that's the thing for me is i just don't i don't even know if their program was sufficient to really expect to see increases in muscle size muscle strength um it's just a question mark for me i, I would like to be able to kind of check that box of all right we know they have a, a sufficient weekly volume um, you know, looking at what we know they did, it seems like they may not have had enough weekly volume in order to expect to get adaptation, especially late stage, you know, cause it's going to be harder in these later stages to get increases in strength because they're going to be more incremental. They're not going to be as substantial as they might be kind of early, earlier on. So, um, I just, I kind of wish that they would have told us a little bit more about what was done. So I, so we could really kind of look at it and break it up a little bit. Yeah. It's hard um, to get all that into a paper though. It yeah. is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, there's limits. And I, I guess I should have looked at the results to see a little bit better, but you know, all we have in our tables is pre-op to post-intervention. So we don't know, did 10 to eight weeks, did you have an increase? Um, I suspect mm -hmm. you did but they were still down a little bit compared to before they went into surgery. Right. So, you know, it, again, it's not like they weren't potentially doing well and they were young. The average age was 16 in this study. Yeah. That was, uh, that that was, was something I caught. I was like, Oh man, I didn't, you know, that's, that's yeah. actually pretty young, you know, at the university yeah. of Michigan, you know, obviously yeah. they were up from the community, but I was thinking this was when they were going to do, it, it was going to be mostly college kids. Yeah. I don't know. Michigan, this smart school, man, it might be all these little nerds, the youngins, Getting into college early, 15, 16 year olds. <laughs> the, the Penn State guy just shaking his head. And here we are, like Big Ten, who even cares? You know, <laughs> you just go on with your TV deal. We don't, we don't mind. <sighs> Next week, baby, one more week. I can't Let's wait. Go. Let's uh, go. Opening season, and I'm at a damn birthday party. Joe Shoes 50th birthday party. Oh, like, hey, Joe. Uh, it's nice. Maybe that Friday night dinner we're doing. Can we put the game on? Uh, the Longhorns <laughs> yeah. are playing University of Louisiana, Monroe, or some yeah. terrible team. But so they're they're playing Duck Dynasty. It's the <laughs> the Texas Longhorns versus Duck Dynasty. Oh really? Friday. Is it Friday? Yeah, that's Saturday. where Duck Dynasty's from, Monroe. Uh, but that's okay. that's what's his face went to school there. I think. Who's um, what's his face? Willie is is that uh, what? I, I mean, I know that's where they live. Yeah. No, it's it's the the 
not not the Willie dad Robertson. it's the guy who yeah yeah, yeah it's yeah. Willie Robertson or whatever that's yeah. what he went to school there yeah but that's Kyle. the town that they live in Kyle's heroes that's who Kyle has fashioned his whole look after yeah I, dynasty I gotta tell you the first yeah. season was the best though I died laughing because I know so many people that are like them that's the thing you know well we're gonna have to enjoy this first game because we play freaking Alabama yeah, week yeah, two. I mean, Jesus, over, right? welcome it's to over. the SEC. I, I hope your money oh, here, for here the we here is, we is go. worth it. I mean, here I we go. This. That's why we got Arch coming, baby. Yeah, That's we're already national. Have you seen? We got Arch Manning, baby. <laughs> Shoot. I mean, we always win, and uh, it's taken care of bef- before September. Oh. I got this. I got this guy recruiting champs every year. He, he played at the University of Florida. So the other day I asked him, I said, hey, man, so like, what's your top five? And he goes, I mean, you got to start with the, the Gators, number one. <laughs> I was like, dude, you're like the only one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're like, dude, Urban Meyer and Tebow left a long time ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So. All right, Weatherford, we're yeah. going proximal now. So we're yeah, moving out of proximal. proximal, everyone's favorite. Yeah, well, everyone's still going to be waiting for how to do proximal. Um, <laughs> since, since we're in a podcast talking about papers where, where BFR didn't find the magic sauce to make everything better. Um, plus, you guys have already talked so much that I've forgotten everything about this paper, but, you know, save save the best for last. Um, so the paper we're breaking down is from, from George Fox University. It's titled Blood Flow Restriction Training for the Rotator Cuff a Randomized Control Trial. And this is on young, healthy grad students. Uh, they had 46 people included in this study. So it's the only non-clinical paper that we're talking about today. And this was a study that had about 46 people and pretty even distribution, male versus female. Um, they did some pre-measurements that included uh, ultrasound imaging of the supraspinatus. They did isometric dynamometry for external rotation and for the supraspinatus, and they did an estimated one rep max for sideline external rotation, uh, all as their pre-measures. And then the, they did two days a week of one exercise. They did sideline external rotation. Everyone did the typical BFR 30, 15, 15, 15, you have a BFR group that did that with 50% limb occlusion pressure applied to the arm. And then you have a control group that did exercise alone. And so they did 30% of an estimated one rep max in this study. And one of the things with their estimated one rep max is they did a really low load and high volume of reps. So they had people choose a one to five pound weight and said, do as many reps as you can. And then they used uh, an equation to estimate a one rep max. Um, And so based on that, they dosed their loading and everyone did the prescribed 75 reps twice a week for eight weeks. The outcome of this, whenever they looked at the supraspinatus tendon thickness and they looked at strength on the isometric dynamometry, for external rotation in the supraspinatus is that everyone improved and there was no difference between groups. So this is not really a case of nothing worked. It seemed like everyone had a positive effect um, and everyone made some positive gain both in the tendon thickness and in the isometric strength category. 
but BFR did not outperform the control group. So looking at this, you know, some of the, the potential limitations that, that I think with this is, you know, for one, if they're just doing one exercise twice a week for eight weeks, is that really enough of a volume to have an, an optimal response? So maybe we have just some, some underdosing to start to really tease out some optimal outcomes with the exercise. And then also the way that they dose the loading as the doing the estimated rep max with a one to five pound weight, I, I tested it out on myself because they didn't really report the number of reps in anyone to, to get to it. With a five pound weight, I, I did 38 reps on one side before I just said, this is too uncomfortable and I'm gonna stop. And if everyone's getting close to that number of reps, that's a huge potential variance in establishing a rep max. So most of the estimated rep max are what max 10 to 12 reps typically. Yeah. And it's, it's much the, I always tell people like when we talk about using the formulas and the calculators, um, the, the lower you are, the more accurate they are, yeah. the, yeah. the, the more reps you do, like they, they just are not accurate whatsoever. Yeah. And so they also allowed participants to continue with their own exercise programs. They just asked them not to do external rotation exercises. So they did include a little bit of a subgroup analysis for people that reported training the shoulder zero to one days a week um, across the study. And that that group did have a little better outcome in strength. And so potentially if we talk about dosing of exercise, more volume of exercise looks like it's better than what was done in the study protocol. And so that, that brings up some questions there. The other thing is across eight weeks, there's no information on if the effort for any single exercise session was adequate. You know, there's no reporting of if it, anyone reached failure in the 75 reps, did they do anything to progress the loading? I know they didn't report reassessing any rep maxes across eight weeks. So if you're not getting to failure with your exercises and you don't do anything to progress across eight weeks of exercise, you know, you're, you know, even if it is giving you something, that's, that's probably not an adequate stimulus across an eight week exercise program. They didn't uh, increase load at way. all. There's no reporting. They might have, hmm. but they didn't say anything about it. So hmm. we, we can't assume that they did. Yeah. That's um, okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, they did address some of these limitations in the paper, you know, and um, the other piece is, yeah, it, it is BFR the way that we typically do it with a 50% limb occlusion pressure on the arm. I don't know if that was assessed at every session. They didn't specifically say that. So, you know, we could potentially be missing something if we're not establishing that, that pressure each time. Although I think that's a very minimal thing across this, this kind of exercise program. Um, and yeah, I mean, the biggest thing to me is just the, you know, single exercise based on the only other comparison that we have to the Lambert paper out of Houston Methodist, where they did four exercises per session, mm -hmm. twice a week for, for eight weeks. And they also did every exercise was performed to failure. And they showed a really significant increase across the eight weeks. Plus, you know, I believe they had some structured load progression built in as well if you're completing all 75 reps of the exercise. So. Yeah, it's probably a volume thing. Well, and if they're not loading, that's that's an issue, you know, not increasing the load. I didn't realize that piece either. Yeah. So 
if you're only doing one exercise per proximal. And I can't remember now in Lambert's paper, but you know, he's been preaching that now also with his, the, the baseball pitcher study that's, that's waiting to be, to come out. You probably need a decent amount of volume. If we're going to see proximal one exercise just might not cut it. Well, and you know, the, the other things that I do want to give some positive stuff on this study were, it did show a positive effect. It wasn't that nothing worked. Everything did have some positive change. You know, so we're really discussing, will it do something versus is it optimal? Mm -hmm. So it, it did something and everyone had some improvement. The way BFR was applied, BFR didn't show anything different than exercise alone. So there's that, that does, you know, give us something here. So if we're just doing exercise in this way at this volume, probably just do exercise and either that or you better progress it. Um, and you know, the other thing is I, I do like the, some of the, the outcomes they were talking about assessment with the ultrasound and they talked about, you know, the expertise of the person that was measuring and how many years of experience they had. Same thing for the isometric dynamometer and the way that they tested that there was mm -hmm. validation for how it was tested and why they chose the position as well as the person performing the measurements and the experience that they had. So, um, there, there's definitely some good things here, just you know, missing some pieces on reporting of the exercise to, to know a little bit more about what they did and what they found. Cool. Okay. So, yep. Some other people were adding extra volume just on their own. Um, one exercise for proximal probably isn't going to cut it and you got to keep increasing your load. And we, we, we preach that for proximal as well as for way distal, they can probably handle even more load than just really low load. Um, so getting that load up there, usually when it's not directly under the cuff is it's more tolerable. So that might be something else you want to address if you're going for proximal. Yeah. I think one of the things too, that, uh, Brad Lambert showed in, in, in that, um, upper extremity paper was, you know, the, the, the differences in strength and, and then he measured strength endurance as well. And I always mm -hmm. kind of tell people, you know, one of the big things that when you look at strength endurance, they measured at each and every week. And it was the BFR group that showed a significantly greater increase in strength endurance. And that was just measured with the volume of work at week three, four, and three. five. Yeah. Right. And then from six, seven, and eight, the, um, there was no difference between groups, although the BFR group always had an absolute greater difference. Mm -hmm. So potentially when you're only assessing strength over say eight weeks, you, you, you may miss when that the greater change in strength occurs. Maybe there's a greater change in strength initially. And then the, the free flow group just kind of catches up. Uh, you know, there, there could be that. I, I don't know. It's, just, it's speculation, but it's, you do see this change in um, strength endurance, though it, faster uh, in, in that BFR group. I just always kind of wonder if strength is the right measure when we're talking external rotation. I, mean, I agree with that too. Yeah. You know, yeah. like and it's that, just, and that's the one you're, you're thing not going to produce as much force. So it's going to yeah. get harder for that measurement to be sensitive enough. So um, I think that's like, you know, probably a conversation that's not had enough. Um, and certainly goes to kind of what builds off what you're saying about the strength endurance, Zach, you know, that's, yep. that was one of the things I really liked about the Lambert stuff is that they, that they looked at that um, as well. And so, yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, multi-rep max was really more of a, a muscular endurance test than a, a rep max test the way it was done for the volume of reps that were performed but yeah, uh, yeah. external rotation 
definitely not a whole lot of meat on that bone for a huge change. Although in this study, they showed almost a 50% increase. You know, they went from 20 pounds roughly pre-test to around 30 pounds post-test on that symmetric dynamometer. So that pretty significant improvement in everyone in that study. So when this goes back to the quote, you know, if you're scared to take chances, you'll never have answers. Um, it's my Nas impression. <laughs> Gee, what's, what's up, dog? Um, you know, so this was Jason Brummett, who's a friend as well. Um, and and he, when he was looking at this, you know, he wanted to just have this design just to see what would happen. And so he's got more studies that they're looking at now in the shoulder as well. So again, we, we don't look at these like, Oh my God, you did this. It's like, yeah, well, if that works, that's great. And he wanted to look at that question and it did it. We need yep. studies that wah, wah. don't show anything just like we need studies that do show stuff. Like right. We, we really need both. That's my job, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out what Zach's holding. What are you holding, man? Yeah, that like a... That's my bugle tube. Your hut for elk season? Yeah. You practicing before the oh, podcast or what? Give us a give us a yeah. sample. Yeah, let's do a call. Elk yeah. call. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't, <laughs> let me let me go get my uh, let me go get my deal. I'll be All right, right. back. Be right back. back. You're coming, about to coming be up, serenaded up, by the, um, the sounds of Zach Dunkel. <laughs> Zach Dunkel. I know he was prepping for the podcast. He was out shooting arrows into fake deer in his yard. I, I envision like Zach just has like target practice around his yard. That's probably why the, he lets the grass grow high all year too. Is he? Yeah, he's you know, excited. He's in, he's in heat right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost uh, hunting season. Uh, <laughs> we're getting close. The we mating call. Close. Yeah. All right. Oh, all God. Right. here we go. I can't wait for this. Yeah. Here you yeah. go. Yeah. Oh, here comes oh. I just gotta let you know that this is squeezing in this New York course, and then. I'm headed out. So yeah. then you're headed out to hunt. Yeah. Yeah. What call, yeah. what are you going to give us right now, Zach? What, what will this attract? It's going to be a bull call. It's going to be a bugle. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, is this going to be, do we need to provide video to everyone for this? Or I mean, is this I mean, like the, the turkey call for people you see on, on the news? No, no, no. This, 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 this we should be able to, uh, go, should be good to go with the sound. All right. All right. Let's hear it. His eyes almost popped out of his head. <laughs> now we should do video for this. Shoot. I thought we were gonna have to call 911. <laughs> we can we can do chuckles as well. So yeah, is, is it, yeah chuckles. go for it. Yeah, okay. let's hear it. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, don't don't tell us about it. We want to hear this. Yeah. Zach, are you turned on now? Well, that's I'm, I'm getting ready. That's my yeah. I mean, my, my honey, I'm coming to bed. My, my, my location bugle, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I've I've asked Kyle to start these Bozeman courses by telling people that I would pay for their seat if they could, you know get me on out take you on uh, out. yeah yeah i mean hey, and and nothing has panned I've out i've thrown it yet. out there yeah. i've thrown it yeah, out there put, zach and the answer i get is people are very secretive about that's, their 100 <laughs> it and 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 there's no locals and no residents that are giving up their spots to uh, some non-residents so yeah yeah uh, yep. you know, 
Well, I feel like in Bozeman, if you just tell them you're not from California, at least then um, you might have built some trust straight away because they just mostly hate Californians at this point. So yeah, there's a lot of you folks that have relocated to Montana and Idaho. Every person that I talk to is like, oh, why are all the Californians moving here? I'm like, I don't know. But I mean, you'd think I would notice a difference at some point out here. And I haven't. Bozafornia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all righty guys that yeah. was good it's nice to not just have uh rainbows and unicorns so those were some that didn't yeah, make it happen that was, that was good ready? stuff wait y'all ready for this i don't know hitching up the buggy churning lots of butter raised a barn on monday <laughs> soon i'll raise another and spend the most of my life living in an Amish paradise. That's my moose call. All right. Peace out. And that's a wrap. Well, that will be outro henceforth. Yeah. I got more of those. All right. Later, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com. One last thing before you get out of here. Quick moment just to say thanks for listening to the podcast. I think we've probably said it two or three different times now, but we really mean it. Um, but we also want to make sure that you, when you listen to this podcast, that you understand it's, it's not medical advice. We, we do our best to make sure the information that we give through this podcast is as accurate as it can be, but it should not be used to treat patients. Those decisions need to be made by a physician, by the appropriate rehab clinician, those people that are licensed to care for that individual in that particular state, nation, etc. And so this is, this also goes for any guests that we bring on the podcast. They're not providing medical advice. This information that you have received here as entertainment should not be taken in that way at all. And it should not also it should neither be used as expert witness or testimony in any sort of legal proceedings. So um, thanks for listening to that and, and understanding that. And we will see you next time. Or wait, we're not gonna see. We'll we'll hear. No, we'll listen. You'll you'll hear us. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. <laughs>